Revelation chapter 6, if you will remember, ends amid scenes of cosmic carnage. A great earthquake, the sun becoming black as sackcloth, the moon turning to blood, the stars falling to the earth like figs from a tree when shaken by a wind, the sky splitting in two and rolling up like scrolls as the Lord prepares to leave His supernatural throne and to enter into the natural realm while the mountains crumble and the islands are dissolved into the sea. And amid these scenes of seismic and celestial upheaval, the inhabitants of the earth, both great and small, the kings, the rulers, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, Slave and free, flee in terror from what they know is coming. The wicked and the unbelieving of the earth who up to that point have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness will in a moment give up the charade and acknowledge what they have always known deep inside to be true. That there is a God to whom they are accountable, against whom they have rebelled, and whose fierce judgment they dare not face. And as John looks on, they try in vain to conceal themselves in the caves and among the rubble where mountains once stood. And they cry out in desperation, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And just as the gavel of judgment is about to fall, and just as John expects to see Christ enter into the world coming on the clouds in power and great glory and sounding the trumpet and sending forth his angels to the four corners, to the four winds, to gather his elect from the earth and issuing that command that raises the dead and summons them to his white throne in judgment. Suddenly the vision vanishes away. And instead, John sees another vision. Two visions, really. From his celestial perspective, John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, and they are holding back the four winds of God's judgment. And he sees a fifth angel rising in the east, with the seal of God in his hand, and with it he seals the servants of God, thus protecting them when the winds are released and the judgment is unleashed upon the earth. And then John sees a second vision, in which a great multitude, which no man can number, are standing before the throne, and they are clothed in white robes, and they have palm branches in their hands, and they are crying out in worship, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is then joined by all of the heavenly hosts in the eternal worship of a sovereign God. What is the meaning of these two visions in Revelation 7? 
And why do they interrupt the breaking of the seven seals? Revelation 6 ended with the breaking of the sixth seal and the coming of the day of wrath. Revelation 8 begins with the breaking of the seventh seal and that half hour of awestruck silence in heaven. Revelation 6 cuts out just before we see Christ return, and it does not resume until Revelation 8.1, when all of the noise and the chaos and the destruction of the sixth seal has been silenced, and the time for judgment has come. In between, we find these two visions of Revelation 7, and you've got to ask why. The visions of Revelation 7 answer the cry upon the lips of the wicked as they flee the impending judgment at the end of Revelation 6. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now look at Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no man could number from every nation and tribe and language and people, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who can stand when the day of wrath falls? Revelation 7 answers, the saints can stand before the throne when the Lamb appears and the day of judgment comes. But who are these saints and how can they stand when all others fall beneath the wrath of God? In these two visions, we find four descriptions of the saints who stand before the throne. And as we walk through these two visions, I invite you to respond in two ways this morning. First, I invite you to make your calling and election sure. You should ask yourself, in which group do I belong? Will I be among those in Revelation 6.17 crying out in terror when Christ returns? Or will I be among those in Revelation 7.9 who are gathered around the throne crying out in worship for the salvation of God and His Christ? Which passage speaks truthfully about the state of my soul before God? And then second, once we've established that to the saints, I invite you to take comfort in the promises that are found in these verses because they are astounding. So you pray with me as we go through this passage for grace that we might taste and see the good news in this passage. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 
and Reuben and Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh and Simeon and Levi and Issachar and Zebulun and Joseph and Benjamin were sealed. Over the years, this passage and its parallel in Revelation chapter 14, 1 through 5, have been interpreted in widely divergent ways. There's no telling what interpretations of this text you've heard. There's no telling what interpretations of this text are in the bottom of your study Bibles right now. The question is, who are the 144,000 who are sealed? A very popular view in recent generations regards these 144,000 as a literal number of ethnic Israelites, ethnic Jews from the nation of Israel, who convert to faith in Christ immediately following the rapture of the church at the beginning of a seven-year period of tribulation, who are then used to, by God to evangelize the world throughout this period of tribulation. That's a very popular view, and I would be willing to bet that most of you walked in this morning thinking that. This view is known as dispensationalism. It's a big word, but don't be scared by it. We're not scared of big words. We learn them. Dispensationalism. And this system of understanding the Scripture is held by no less a respected evangelical luminary than John MacArthur. Listen, I love me some John MacArthur. I think he's wrong here. And he's not wrong much of anywhere. I think he's wrong here. It is, however, a relatively new theological stance. Did you know that that view of Revelation 7 and of other passages, pre-tribulational rapture, distinction between the church and Israel, even in the New Covenant, did you know that that view has only been around since about 1830? It was formulated by an Irishman named John Nelson Darby, who was a uh, pilgrim brethren. It came to widespread acceptance in, the, in America and in Great Britain through the ministry of D.L. Moody. And then it was firmly established in American evangelicalism at the turn of the 20th century when it was found in the notes of C.I. Schofield in his Schofield Reference Bible, which could be found in nearly every evangelical home in the first part of the 20th century. If you didn't have a Schofield Bible in your house, well, you probably just weren't Christian. How many of you had a Schofield Bible? How many of you still have? I'm just kidding. Its popularity was again reinforced in a different generation when it was propounded in the best-selling non-fiction book of the 1970s, a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by a man named Hal Lindsey. Then it was established again in a new generation in the 1990s with Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' mega bestseller, Left Behind. But with all due respect... I think they've missed it. And so did nearly all of the church for the first 1,800 years. 
I'm not alone in my view that I'm going to give you this morning. In fact, it was the dominant view of the church throughout much of the church's history. The entire dispensational system, I think, is flawed from its foundations. Though at one time, dispensationalism was the dominant view in American evangelicalism, most of you, if you were taught the book of Revelation, you were taught it from a dispensational perspective. I was. I grew up a default dispensationalist. We, we learned the book of Revelation side by side with left behind. But the fact of the matter is, is that this view is historically novel and theological novelty is rarely, if ever, a good idea. It's not good to come up with new ways of looking at Scripture. It's good to find out how the apostles looked at Scripture. And dispensationalism is, I think, I'm fairly confident, passing off the scene for lack of a biblical foundation. I don't think you'll see it 50 years from now. I think you'll read about it in textbooks. The view I'm going to share with you this morning is undoubtedly the historic view of the Christian church. And it is quickly returning to prominence in our day, and praise God for it. There are a number of problems with the dispensational understanding of Scripture that affects their view, in particular, of this text. First, the rapture of the church prior to a period of tribulation is nowhere taught in Scripture. What is clearly taught is the resurrection of the church at the end of the age. Second, the tribulation, furthermore, is not some future seven-year period, but rather encompasses the entirety of this age between the first and second comings of Christ. At least, that's what the Apostle John thought. Look with me at Revelation 1.9. He introduces himself to the churches of Asia Minor as... John, your brother and partner in, what? The tribulation. Third, this sharp distinction that they draw between the nation of Israel and the church, between Israel and the church with regard to the promises made to Abraham, forces them to read Israel in this passage. They see Israel, and it forces them to interpret Israel as ethnic Jews and a geopolitical state over in modern-day Palestine, failing thereby to recognize that in the New Covenant, According to the Holy Spirit-inspired author of Scripture, there is no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile. The true Israel, according to all of the New Testament, the true Israel, the true children of Abraham, the true covenant people of God, and thereby the heir of of the promises are all those and only those, Jew and Gentile, who are in Christ by faith. We are the true Israel. We are the children of Abraham. 
together with the Jews for Jesus and all of the church of the ages. All of those who are in faith, in Christ, by grace, through faith. Let me give you a few passages. You can jot them down. We don't have time to turn there. Check me on this. Please, don't just take my word for it. Be Bereans, especially if this is brand new to you. Romans 2, 28 through 29. Those are not Jews who are ones externally, but Jews who are Jews internally by the circumcision, not of the flesh, but of the spirit, of the heart. Romans 9, they are not the children of Abraham who are accounted according to the flesh, but those who are according to the promise are the children of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7 through 9, the children of Abraham are those who are of faith. 3, 7 through 9, Galatians 3, 14, Galatians 3, 28 and 29. If you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, you are the sons of Abraham and the heirs according to the promise. How could it be any clearer? Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, the dividing wall that divided Jews and Gentiles, it has been torn down and abolished in Christ. And God is making us who used to be separated into one new man. We are being formed together into one spiritual house in which God dwells by his spirit. 1 Peter 2, 9. You, church, you are the holy nation. You are the chosen race. You are the people for God's own possession. Finally, such an, in my view, overly literal interpretation of this passage, I think, fails to recognize the symbolic nature of the visions of Revelation, in which truths are conveyed by means of signs. The opening verse, look with me at Revelation 1.1. The opening verse tells us that this is going to be a symbolic book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known, underline that, he made it known by sending his angel to the servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Made it known in the ESV translates the Greek word semino, which means to signify or to make known by means of signs or symbols. So we should expect what comes in this revelation to be symbolic in nature and not literal names and numbers. In other words, Israel in Revelation 7, is not literal Israel any more than Babylon in Revelation 18 is literal Babylon. These are symbols. And the people to whom John wrote knew that. So, with that introduction, I had to do a little deconstruction here. Hope you'll forgive me if I just shattered your eschatology. With that introduction, let me tell you what I think this vision is intended to convey. In verse 1, John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, and they are holding back the four winds 
of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. All right, I think these four angels that are holding back the four winds function in the same way as the four horsemen in Revelation chapter 6. That, are, that is, they are agents of divine judgment, and the four winds are the symbols of that judgment, just like they are in Zechariah 6, 5. In verse 2, John sees another angel rising with the rising of the sun, ascending with the rising of the sun, and he has the seal of God, the seal of the living God, and he calls out to the four angels who stand at the four corners of the earth and are preparing to unleash God's judgment upon earth and sea, and he forbids them from doing so. He forbids them from executing God's judgment until God's servants have been sealed. So first... The servants of God must be sealed, and then and only then will the judgment of God be unleashed upon the earth. So the question is, what is this seal and who are these servants? Well, I'm convinced that the servants of God is a reference to the totality of the redeemed in Christ Jesus. That is, the servants of God are the blood-bought saints from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And that the seal of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit given to every saint who protects us from the judgment and wrath of God and keeps us faithful through the tribulation of this age. Now I'm going to give you five reasons why I think that. If you're looking at your bulletin, it looks like a bunch of math equations. That was my best attempt at shorthand. Number one, in the parallel passage, turn to Revelation 14. In the parallel passage in Revelation 14, 1 to 5, the 144,000 stand with the Lamb atop Mount Zion, and they have the name of the Lamb and of His Father written on their foreheads. You see it? Verse 1. This corresponds to the seal that is on the foreheads of the servants the 144,000 in Revelation 7.3. Do you see the connection? 14.1, name of Jesus and of his Father on the foreheads of the 144,000. 7.3, seal of God upon the foreheads of the 144,000. See the connection? Well, this seal of God then is identical to the promise that Jesus makes to all those who conquer in this age of tribulation in the promise he makes to the church at Philadelphia. Look at Revelation 3.12. A congregation, by the way, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. Revelation 3.12. To the one who conquers, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Name of Jesus and the name of Jesus' Father, I will write that on them. So we take these three passages together, 3, 7-3, 14-1, and we see these strong connections between them, and we infer that it is not 144,000 ethnic Jews who are sealed with the name of God and of Christ on their foreheads, but is in fact all of the church who conquer in this tribulation who are sealed with the name of Christ and of his Father. Reason number two. Again, in the parallel passage in Revelation 14, 1-5, look at verse 4. 
The 144,000 are described as those who have been redeemed. Underline that. Greek word is agorazo. They've been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. So they are described as those who have been redeemed for God. Does that sound familiar? Yes, Tim, it sounds familiar because we were listening really intently in Revelation chapter 5. When the 24 elders said to the lamb, worthy are you, for you were slain, and with your blood you redeemed a people for God. Same identical language. It's the same group of people. And in Revelation 5, who are the redeemed? Are they ethnic Israelites? No, they are people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Okay, so 14.4 and 5.9, there's the link between redeemed for God. 5.9 has them from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, which rings a bell in my mind down to Revelation 7.9, where the multitude that stands before the throne, clothed in white robes, which they've washed in the blood of the Lamb, are described as a vast innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So I've got another connection of three. 14.4, All describing the same group of people. And the 144,000 in Revelation 14 connects them to the 144,000 in Revelation 7. It's the same people. A redeemed multitude purchased for God by the blood of the Lamb. This same group is going to be found throughout the book of Revelation, symbolically described in different ways in order to convey different truths about the saints of God. Number three, 144,000 is a symbolic number and not a literal accounting. It amounts to 12 times 12 times 1,000, which I believe points to the totality or fullness of the people of God. When God wanted to speak of the fullness of his old covenant people, he would simply refer to them as the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jesus in the New Testament wanted to refer to the totality of his disciples, he would refer simply to the 12. 1,000 is a number that connotes fullness, large, complete quantity, like the 1,000 years in Revelation 20. Twelve, people of God, Old Covenant. Twelve, people of God, New Covenant. Take them together like the twelve foundation stones and the twelve gates of the wall. Take them together, multiply it by perfect, and you get 144,000. It's a symbolic way of representing the fullness of the redeemed people of God. Fourth, if this were a reference to ethnic Israel, then why does the composition of the list of tribes here differ than every other place in the Old Testament? You can turn to no other place in the Old Testament where you will find this listing of names. For instance, why is the tribe of Dan missing? I've got a theory for that. Why is Joseph and Manasseh found? Normally you would find Joseph or Manasseh and Ephraim, 
but not Joseph and only one of his sons. That doesn't appear anywhere. This, of course, is no problem if the reference to the tribes of Israel is symbolic, like John intended. Representing the fullness of the true people of God. By the way, the people of God in which there are no idolaters, like Dan. Dan is known in the Old Testament, Judges 18, 30, 1 Kings 12. He is known to be an idolater. And it's his tribe that leads the northern kingdom into idolatry after the reign of Solomon. Fifth, oh, and Revelation 21.8 says that the idolaters will not enter into the kingdom of God. These are folks who are entering into the kingdom of God. That's why Dan's missing. Fifth, as regards the nature of the seal, we have seen that the seal of Revelation 7.3 is synonymous with the name of God and of Christ, right? Revelation 3.12, 14.1, see it again in 22.4. And that it is given to all those and only those who are purchased by the blood of the Lamb. But what is this seal and what does it do? Well, the seal is a mark of ownership, signifying that we are the servants of God and that we belong to our master who bought us. Its function can be deduced from this very passage. The judgment of God, right, the four winds, They cannot be unleashed until the servants of God are sealed, which implies that the seal is going to protect the servants from the winds of judgment. Well, that idea is confirmed in Revelation 9, 4. Look there with me. Speaking of the plague of locusts in the fifth trumpet, they, the locusts, We're told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So who's getting harmed? The unsealed. So the seal protects them from harm. What is this seal? I think, since the very same language is used in Ephesians 1, I think it's the Holy Spirit. In Him, Ephesians 1.13 You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. How can I be sure that I won't peter out? When the tribulation comes, how can I be sure that I will endure to the end through all of the sufferings that will befall the saints in this age? How can I be sure that I won't be consumed by God's judgment? The Holy Spirit resides within me and He keeps me believing. He keeps me faithful until, by faith, I enter into the possession of my inheritance. Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit in the same way that John speaks of the Holy Spirit in Revelation 7. The seal, protection, preservation unto the inheritance of the sons of Abraham. As we have seen many times now, and as was made clear from the presence of the martyrs who are dying dying for their faith in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, This seal, and be very clear, this seal does not protect you from physical sufferings during the tribulation of this age. 
You will suffer for your faith because, as Paul told the churches of Galatia, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He will not keep you from suffering physically because by the providential plan of God, we are as sheep to be slaughtered all the day long. But what the promise is, is that while we are sheep to be slaughtered, nothing, Neither famine or nakedness or sword, angels in heaven, demons below, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus. That's the seal. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. What keeps you believing and trusting? You have the seal of God on your forehead. It is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that keeps us faithful unto death, guaranteeing our inheritance of the crown of life. So what do we we conclude about this vision of seven, one through eight, vision of the 144,000? Here's my conclusion. This vision pictures the church, the true Israel of God, arrayed for battle, It looks very much like Numbers 1 when the people were numbered and they were set in their regiments and prepared for holy war. It pictures the church, the true Israel of God, arrayed for battle during the tribulation of this age. But before they are sent out to do battle, to evangelize the world, they are sealed. They are protected. They are given armor such that not a hair of their head will perish, which was the promise of Jesus to his disciples that he said, most of you are going to die, but not a hair of your head will perish. That's the seal. We are numbered by God, known individually, precisely numbered by God, enrolled in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain from before the foundations of the earth, So by the Father's sovereign decree of election and by the Son's atoning power of His blood and by the persevering power of the Holy Spirit, we persevere to the end where we will surely stand in the final judgment and then enter into the everlasting inheritance that belongs to the true people of God, the true sons of Abraham, that land in which God will dwell in the midst of His people. That's 7, 1 to 8. The vision of Revelation 7, 9 to 17 shows the same group of people, the saints, but from a different time, a different location, and from a different perspective. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all of the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes? From where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation." They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
So let me tell you what's going on here with these two visions. Verses 1 to 8 shows the church militant, arrayed for battle, on earth, prepared for and protected in the tribulation of this age. Verses 9 through 17 shows the church triumphant, having come out of the great tribulation, standing in heaven before God's throne, victorious and glorified. Verses 1 to 8 shows the church from God's perspective, precisely numbered, the true Israel, the true sons of Abraham, the heirs of the promise. Verses 9 to 17 shows the church from John's perspective, and multitude, I can't count. And they're from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And the question is, how did they do it? How did they come out of the tribulation such that they are standing before the throne of God when all others have fallen between, beneath God's judgment and wrath. How do they stand? And the answer is given in verses 13 and 14. One of the elders asked John, who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? John says, you know. And the elder then answers his own question. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb, Therefore, they are before the throne of God. So how do the saints stand in the tribulation? How do they stand when the day of wrath comes? How do they stand before the throne of God in whose presence the angels must hide their faces as they ceaselessly cry out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They can't even look upon the throne. And there are the saints. Why? Verses 1 to 8 tell us because they're sealed. And verses 9 to 17 tells us because they're sanctified. Sanctified by the blood of Christ. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The prophet Isaiah once wrote, we have all become like one who is unclean. All of us. No exceptions in this room. All of us have become as one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. The image Isaiah employs goes deeper than just dragging the hem of your robe through the dirt. Our robes have been defiled by the filth of sin. It's a repulsive word. That's the state of our hearts before God apart from Christ. Filthy. Polluted with the filth of sin. Stained with iniquity. Covered in shame. How can we possibly hope to stand before the King? The Holy One who sits upon the throne clothed in these. The reason... Some of you do not and cannot rejoice in Revelation 7.14 and you can't rejoice in it is well with my soul and you feel no emotion welling up within you is because you have never seen yourself as filthy. You've never felt the shame of your sin and you've never known the terror of the holy. You never, in the words of Isaiah, have been undone. 
by his spirit. Our minds, our hearts, our souls are so defiled before God and we have no idea. We think anyone can come before a holy God. Why can't they? Why wouldn't he let us in? Doesn't he just love us as we are? Yes and no. Oh, that the Spirit would move on our hearts, that we would feel our guilt and know our shame and experience the dread of a sinner before a holy God. Nothing in all the world can remove this defilement. Nothing. Cleansing is beyond the reach of your own works and your own efforts. Try to do it. Try to make yourself clean in the sight of God by works and by trying and by striving and by going to church and by just going to read the Bible more and I'm going to pray more and I'm going to be more loving and I'm just going to do more, more religious, churchy, godly things. And you know what you'll find yourself doing? You'll find yourself like Lady Macbeth. Remember her? She convinces her husband to murder King Duncan and then to steal his throne. But in the process, she loses her sanity and her soul. And so night by night, she wanders the castles, wringing her hands together, trying to get rid of a guilt that cannot be washed away. There's blood on our hands. And there's defilement on our robes. And you can't clean it. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for wretched, filthy, polluted, defiled sinners? Indeed there is. That's why Revelation 7 grips you to the heart and brings you to the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? You feel broken like there's pieces of you you've shelled out in every immoral sexual relationship you've ever had? What can make you whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty state. Is there any hope for sinners? Yes. Revelation 7 says that there is a lamb who is Christ Jesus the Lord who was slaughtered upon the altar of the cross and by his holy and precious blood poured out in sacrifice for sinners, the wrath of God was satisfied. His righteous judgment meted out, full atonement made, And the saints are those who by faith have walked up to the altar of the cross where blood was poured out and pooled in sacrifice. And they they take their filthy garments and they, they plunge them beneath the blood of Jesus. And by the wonder and the miracle of atonement, plunging defiled, polluted, filthy garments in holy, crimson, red blood brings them out sparkling white. 
white as snow. The saints are sanctified in the blood of the Lamb. And having been sanctified by the blood of the Lamb and sealed by the Holy Spirit, they have persevered through and have come out of the great tribulation. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and because they did not love this life even when they were faced with death. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We've seen the saints sealed. We've seen the saints sanctified. We now see the saints sheltered in the presence of their God. Evidently, they weren't raptured. See, evidently, they endured tribulation. Evidently, they have known what it is to be hungry and thirsty and exposed. And evidently, they have known tears and sorrow and grief. They were, as Paul said, sheep to be slaughtered all the day long, but they know such things no more. They have come out of the tribulation. They have overcome. They have conquered. And now their tribulation is over. And they stand before the throne of God. And they serve him night and day in his temple. And he shelters them in his presence. And the lamb is their shepherd. And they are the sheep of his pasture. And he leads them to the springs of the water of life. Where they drink deeply and refreshingly and satisfyingly. From the well of everlasting joy. And from the streams of God's mercy. And what do they do out of their joy? What do they do when they stand before the throne of God? What do they do in service to him night and day in his temple? They stand in the splendor of holiness. No more sin, no more shame, no more sorrow. With palm branches in their hands. And they sing. They sing for the joy of their salvation. They sing to him who sits on the throne. They sing to the lamb who was slain. They sing of sovereign grace for they know now more than ever that God has wrought this. And salvation belongs to him. They sing and all of heaven sings with them. There is an eruption of holy joy to the praise of his glorious grace. And the question today is, will you stand and sing with them? Will you be among the saints who stand and sing before the throne? See, there is an eternity of difference between Revelation 7-9 and Revelation 6-17. Between those who cry out in terror at the coming wrath and those who cry out in worship at the salvation they have received. So beloved, I tell you this morning, the day of wrath has not yet come. Revelation 6.17 has not yet happened. The day of judgment has not yet arrived, which means that today, today, today is the day of grace. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's patience. Today, the spirit and the bride, those saints who are before the throne, they say, come. 
You hear them? They say, come. And today, him who hears, that's, that's me, I've heard, and I call out to you, and I say, come. And today, Christ the Lamb says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come, and let him who desires take of the water of life without price. And so the call of revelation is to you today. It says, come, wash your robes white in the blood of the Lamb, and then stand and join with the saints before the throne and sing to the glory of His sovereign grace. 